I love the old songs like, Jesus loves me, this I know, and I don't know how many people knew the tune, Oh, How I Love Jesus, that's another song that's not in the new hymnal. But then new songs like this, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Christ in Me, that's amazing too. Uh, it's amazing. God continues, Christ still gifts His church with gifts that magnify and, and lift up His name, and I think that's such a beautiful thing. I love the songs that we sing at our church. It's not easy because when we're going on vacation, I've been scoping out churches. I mean, I must have looked at 10 or 12 so far, and I'm not finding one yet to go to. But I really like going to church when I'm not in charge, so I'm sure I'll go somewhere, but we'll see. Anyway, Ephesians. Back to Ephesians. Verses 3 to 14, we're not going to get anywhere near through all the 14, but we are moving forward through this passage, through this single sentence. So moving forward, I'm going to tell you this is what my plan looks like. Uh, Man plans his way and the Lord directs his steps, so I'm pretty sure this is going to be off. Uh, Initially, believe it or not, I thought I could do it in three weeks. Now I'm up to five weeks, and that's kind of optimistic probably, especially considering what time it is. So now it may be more like six weeks or even seven. But initially, I mean, it's going to look something like this. We're going to break it up uh, potentially two weeks on verses 3 to 6, two weeks on verses 7 to 12, and then one week on verses 13 and 14. And there's a reason for that. The reason would be God the Father's actions are highlighted especially, not only, but especially in verses 3 to 6. Christ's actions are especially highlighted in verses 7 to 12, and then the Holy Spirit's actions are especially highlighted in verses 13 and 14. Another way to look at that is that when we're talking about what God the Father does, we're going all the way back into eternity past. When we look at what Christ does, it's in a historical past. In the fullness of time, he was born of a Virgin Mary. In the fullness of time, he entered public ministry. In the fullness of time, he gave up his life on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again from the grave. And after 40 days, he ascended to his Father in heaven. And on the 50th day, Christ, in conjunction with the Father, poured out his Spirit on the church. So all of that is the historical past, which was planned by the Father in eternity past. And then the Spirit's action... Whoops, I skipped, went too far is uh, highlighting the present, even his work in the present day. He seals believers until the day of redemption. So that's kind of the the big picture of just this single sentence, verses 3 to 14. Let's start off with just verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, and us is highlighted simply because, again, I want to draw out, when, when Paul uses that pronoun us, he means Jewish believers and Gentile believers together. When he talks about we who were the first to believe, he's talking about uh, Jewish believers because the gospel came first to Jews. When he talks about you, he's talking about you Gentiles believed as well. When he talks about us, he means he's not, this isn't a blessing pronounced on all the people of the world because we're all God's children. Though in some sense we're God's children and that God is the creator of everyone and everyone is created in the image of God, marred as that image may be. But this is a blessing pronounced on us, those in Christ, Jews and Gentiles together, slave-free 
male, female, makes no difference. A blessing on, on believers. The word, well, actually the first main clause occurs in verse 3. The first main thing that the Father does is he has blessed us. There are two other main clauses describing what God the Father does. And then everything else in, in all of verses 3 to 14 kind of revolve around these three main clauses as to what God the Father has done. First of all, he's blessed us. The second main clause in verse 5, he predestined us. And the third main clause is in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. And then there's a lot added to that, which fleshes it out, what those three main clauses are, are proclaiming and announcing which we're going to break down over a good number of weeks. The word blessing occurs three times. It's the same word in the Greek every time. And that word is eulogia, though I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. And I always feel bad trying to pronounce words when we have two language people like Matt and Emily here. And they must just laugh, but I don't know. I, I barely know English. You got it right. I got it right? Okay. That's enough out of you because I may say a couple more words that I won't get right. Eulogia is a compound word in the Greek. It, it comes from two other words, one of which is, the, is a word for good, and then the second word, logos, you know, in the beginning was the logos, was the word. So a blessing is the good word. We have a lot of good words to say about God the Father because God the Father has done, pronounced a lot of good words on behalf of us. So the blessing starts really with what God has done, but because of what God has done, we have a lot of good things to say about God, which is why we gather together to sing these songs and to celebrate what God has done. A couple of first impressions about God's blessing, this idea of blessing that occurs three times. First of all, he says every blessing. That doesn't mean every every possible blessing, because one blessing will be one day we'll receive a glorified body. That'll be a blessing. Not to have a, a body marred by sin, weak, frail, prone to sin. It'll be a blessing one day when I no longer am capable of sinning. So this idea of every blessing, it, it, it has, get it right, it means each, every, all sorts of. J.B. Phillips' translation from 1958 translates the verse this way. Praise be to God for giving us through Christ every possible spiritual benefit. Every What more can he say than to you he has said? What more could he do for our situation right now than, what he's, than how he has already blessed us? That's the idea behind it. Every imaginable blessing that is going to benefit us right now, he's blessed us with. And then the second first impression is he calls it spiritual blessing which suggests two things. It may be one more than the other. It may be both equally, but commentators kind of debate this around. One idea may be these are called spiritual blessings because apart from the Spirit of God, there is no blessing. Unless God's Spirit takes God's plan and, and works it out, there's no blessing. So the, the blessing comes from God's Spirit. But probably most commentators think it's a, a contrast between material blessings and spiritual blessings. Blessings that you, you know, you may 
ask for, I, I sure would like a new job, or I would like a, a new place to live, or I would like to, a new home. God would, you know, let me get that home or get that vehicle, whatever. That, all these things that we see and touch, those are material blessings, and they, they really can be blessings. I don't mean to downplay them. They're part of the enjoyment of life. Ecclesiastes talks about that. I still think I've got one more Ecclesiastes in me if the Lord tarries. But, but these are spiritual blessings. They're spiritual. Uh, they're blessings that are not so easily touched and, and handled. They're spiritual blessings. We're going to talk about that as we move forward, what that exactly looks like. But initially what I want to say is that the idea of God blessing at all is not an unfamiliar idea. It's all through the Bible. You're not going to get out of Genesis without having any number of blessings. God has always blessed people. And, and one of the things that it reminds me of what Paul says in verse 3, it really reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 84, verse 11. They're kind of similar. One's in the Old Testament, one's in the New Testament. So Psalm 84, verse 11 reads this way. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold. Paul puts it in his word. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The psalmist says, no good thing does he withhold. But I haven't finished verse 11. Because there's kind of a catch. Verse 11 ends from those who walk uprightly. And that's the problem. That's the dilemma. God has always blessed his people. God has always made these wonderful promises. These wonderful benedictions. These wonderful... This is what I I am able to do because of who I am. But the problem is, all of God's promises, however grand and glorious they are, they're only as strong as their weakest link. I'm the weakest link. And you're the weakest link. Between all that God promises to do and them actually being brought to fulfillment, the weak link is us. Paul puts it another way. I don't have time to go there, but it's a fascinating passage. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, The law is holy. He's talking about what Moses received on Mount Sinai, the covenant of law, the Old Testament. It's all the Old Testament, but especially the, the covenant of law. Paul says, The law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's righteous. It's good. This is in Romans 7, and then Paul goes on to say, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. The law, holy, righteous, good, for life. If you walk in these things, you will experience life. But Paul says, I found it brought death because I'm the weak link. I'm prone to sin. The things I want to do that I know I ought to do, I don't. The things that I know are forbidden me by God, those are the things I do. So the law, which is is holy, righteous, good, it brings death. So it leads to a question. How can Paul have any confidence that the outcome now will be any different or any better than it was in the psalmist's day? The psalmist says he withholds nothing good. Paul says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But if I'm always the weak link, we've got a problem. But the answer in Ephesians is pretty resounding, and it's two-pronged. The first prong is, no, we're blessed in Christ. 
I'm not the weak link. I'm in Christ. And Christ is not a weak link. If I have to be the last link to this chain of God's blessing, it fails. If it rests on my performance and my determination and my making the right choices and thinking the right things, but it doesn't depend on me. It depends on Christ. I'm in Christ. It depends on his performance and he lived in perfect obedience to his father. He never, he knew no sin. It doesn't mean he didn't know what it was. He saw sin all around him, but he never participated in that sin. So this blessing is secure because it's in Christ. And I'm in Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We'll talk about that more as we move forward. I'm not sure about today. And then also in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I'm in him. I've been chosen by God to be in Christ. I'm predestined by God for adoption as a son. So the blessing is mine because of Christ, not because of me. It's because of Christ. A second reason. This blessing is in the heavenly places. Number one, it's absolutely certain because it depends on Christ's performance and also... Because this blessing is made secure in the heavenly places. It's not just a blessing that's limited to the world as we know it. It's a blessing that somehow is associated with, literally, it's just in the heavenlies. So, this is a very interesting phrase. It occurs kind of an amazing five times in Ephesians. In the heavenlies. Or in the heavenly places. Five times in Ephesians. That's amazing because Paul never uses that phrase in any of his other letters. It's amazing because it never occurs anywhere else in the New Testament. That phrase, in the heavenlies, or this Bible, in the heavenly places, five times in Ephesians, nowhere else. So I want to talk about what is what does it mean, in the heavenlies, and then I want to look at the five times that it's used. It's a little bit difficult to understand, But I think if I give you the definition, I'm going to give you four different commentators' definition trying to explain it, and I think you'll get kind of a handle on it. The gist of it is this. It's kind of like a parallel reality. And what the commentators, and they're all in agreement on this, uh, different scholars that I checked, they're all in agreement. Our tendency is, as soon as we hear the word heaven, we think, oh, earth, heaven, it's a, different, it's a different place. We're, we're in one place, that's a different place. But it's less that. When Paul uses the term in the heavenlies, he's talking about, about a reality parallel to... It's, it's here now. In some sense, you're in the heavenlies. In Christ. It's, it's a reality that you can't touch and see and hear, but it's happening all around you. Right now. So the four definitions go like this. John Stott... The heavenlies are the sphere in which the rulers and powers continue to operate, in which Christ reigns supreme and his people reign with him. So the blessing is secure because it's in the heavenlies, and guess what? Christ reigns supreme in the heavenlies. Second definition. It appears then that the term heavenly places refers not to a physical locality, but to a realm or region of spiritual reality to which the believer has been lifted in Christ. That is to say, 
It speaks not of the heaven of the future, but of the heaven that lies within and around the Christian here and now. A parallel reality that we don't fully experience, but it's there. Thirdly, when Paul refers to the heavenly places, he refers to the sphere beyond the material world. The place of spiritual activity where the ultimate conflict between good and evil takes place. This conflict continues, but has already been won by Christ's death and resurrection. And then the last definition. In the writer's mind, the heavens are part of the created universe. Not geographically understood, but understood as the realm of unseen forces that exert their influence on human beings. So that's the realm of unseen forces that exert their influence on human beings. God's blessing on believers in the heavenly places asserts God's presence, power, and indeed supremacy in that realm. It's because of Christ's presence, power, and supremacy that the blessing is sure. Now let's look at the five occasions in which it occurs in Ephesians. I'm going to do this in reverse order. Because I want to end with the passage where we're actually at. So start by going to Ephesians chapter 6. Start by going to Ephesians chapter 6. This is the last occurrence of the heavenlies. It's a familiar passage. Chapter 6 verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the the heavenly places. These powers, these realities, these existences, which we don't behold, but they're there. And we think our problem is with governments and nations and peoples and tribes. But behind that is a reality of these spiritual powers that that we don't perceive, but they're there in a parallel reality. According to Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 12. Go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Paul writes, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for the ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Again, it's this idea of rulers and powers and authorities in a reality that we don't experience, but it's there. And the church, by being the church, is preaching the triumph of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the gospel of Christ to those, re- those powers in that alternate reality. Third passage, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, now the you is going to refer to the Gentiles. You were dead in the trespasses, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The blessing is secure because by the grace of God, I've been raised up to be with Christ in those heavenlies in which he reigns supreme. There's no chance of this blessing not being brought to its fulfillment because of who Christ is, what he's done, and where he's at. And by the grace of God, I'm with him. Fourth passage. Ephesians chapter 1, picking up at verse 16. Paul writes long sentences, and I had to give you a little context. So verse 16, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So out of all those powers and dominions and authorities and those in the heavenlies, Christ reigns supreme. He's above it all, which is why the blessing is secure. And then the last passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, with that understanding of the heavenlies, if you're, if you're connecting dots with other things that Paul writes in other places, I don't know, I was meant to give you that. I don't know how you would not immediately think of Romans chapter 8. Because in Romans chapter 8, it talks about what will separate me from the love of Christ. And it's, I mean, Hannah could come up and lead us if we were a good news club. It's nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not things present, nor things to come, nor forces or powers or na- Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Because He is elevated in the heavenlies. He's above it all. Which is why Paul in Romans doesn't just talk about sword and tribulation and earthquake or famine. Those are things we know. Those are things you can read about in the newspaper. Nothing, those things cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nor can any of those powers and forces in the heavenlies, which you really don't experience and see, neither can those things separate you, because Christ rules over them too. 
And this is why Ephesians starts off with just such resounding praise and such assurance of blessing. I'm in Christ and I'm in the heavenlies where he reigns supreme. Praise be to God. This is good stuff. All right. In verse 4, we're not going to get very far. I've got a little time, but we're not going to get as far as I imagined at one point. In verse 4, Paul takes us to the, to the blessings beginning. So, the main clause is he's blessed us. Now, the beginning of that blessing, like, what does it mean to be blessed? Well, the beginning of the blessing in verse 4 is he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That word chose is a simple word. It means to pick out. To choose for oneself, it occurs in the New Testament, I don't know how many times now, I, at least, I think, 12, maybe as many as 20 times. It's always used in the middle voice, only used in the middle voice, which means it's a choosing or a picking for yourself. So God the Father picked out and chose for himself those who would be in Christ. That's the blessing. Because if I'm not in Christ and it's up to me, the chain falls apart. The whole blessing comes crashing down. It's like God withholds no good things to those who walk uprightly. I don't want to be in charge of walking uprightly. And as a Christian, I'm called to walk uprightly. I'm called to be holy as he's holy. But that's only because I've received the blessing in Christ. It starts with Christ's perfect obedience. And then I'm to, follow, I'm to walk and live as he lived and walked. Not to attain... Not to acquire, not to secure, but because I already have. Um, I changed some slides this morning. I'm not positive what comes next, so I'm not sure if this is a good stopping point or not. Let's just take a little peek. It's kind of like, let's make a deal. Do you want to you try for the next screen? Let's see. It's uh... Okay, this is the first time the word is ever used in the New Testament. I say the first time. Actually, it occurs in Mark's gospel. I know Mark's gospel comes before Luke's gospel. But when Mark uses it, it's talking about a time in Jesus' life that is much later. So the first time it's used chronologically in the New Testament would be Jesus. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose. He picked out for himself twelve whom he named apostles. That's what it means to choose. He, there, he's got a whole bunch, he's got a multitude. I don't know what, how big the multitude is right now, but he's got a whole bunch of disciples. He chooses 12 to himself to be apostles. Now that gives you some idea what the word means, but it's not, they're not equivalents. Okay? They're not exactly the same. Because in this situation, you've got, he's picking among a group of disciples. I'm going to guess all of them would love to be one of the 12. Unless they find out how they're going to die, then maybe not. But then you read about Stephen. I'm not sure that they consider that a bit. You know, I think they're okay with that. But any of those disciples would be okay with being chosen. But Jesus, for reasons sufficient to himself, after continuing all night in prayer to his father, he chooses 12 to be his apostles. From that 12, he later will choose three to accompany him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He will choose the same three to go further into the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was particularly close to the three, Peter, James, and John. I don't think Jesus did any injustice to the other nine. I don't think Jesus did any injustice to the other disciples because Jesus was free to 
to choose who he wanted to himself to be his twelve apostles. He was free to choose of the twelve, three to accompany him in a more special set of circumstances. And so he did. So the difference between the two, though the choice is demonstrated in both cases, that's that's the same. The difference is, here you're starting with a group of disciples that you're choosing out of. In this case, you're not starting with a group of disciples, you're starting with a group of people who are by nature children of wrath. And nobody wants to be chosen, left to themselves. Nobody wants to follow Christ. Nobody's, nobody's seeking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, left to himself. And yet you've still got a choice. Um, this probably is the... Well, I guess I'll go one more screen and stir up the water just a little bit more, and then I think I'm going to have to quit. Um, in the Bible, the Bible refers to those whom God has graciously chosen as the elect. Uh, the words basically are, are the same. They come from the same, they're derived from the same roots. So, uh, chosen, those who are chosen are called in Scripture the elect. And the elect, when you uh, elect, that's kind of an interesting word because obviously when we use the word elect or election, we're, we think in terms of politics. And the reason why the Bible uses that word in our, in our English translation, it's not a bad word, because what it's, what it's demonstrating is it's a, it's a distinguishing a smaller group from a larger group. In, in a po- political election, you're distinguishing one person who's gonna get a lot of money and lots of fringe benefits for the rest of their life because they were, they won an election. Uh, as opposed to the person that lost the election. But they'll probably get appointed to some committee and make a lot of money too. But that's besides the point. I shouldn't even be talking about this. But in the Bible, what you need to see, there is a connect, there's a close connection between the elect and chosen. It's basically the same. So when you read about the elect in Scripture, you're talking about chosen. I've got three references on there. You can see how they're related. Um, they're all good references, but I don't have time to go into those now. So we'll, I guess we'll have to build on this next week. I don't know that we're going to finish verses 3 to 6 next week. But I'll say we'll finish verse 4. And maybe maybe 5 and 6. We'll see. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to do it justice. I've never taught Ephesians. I want to give it my best go. What are your comments and questions at kind of an untimely stopping point? Carrie. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that more next week for sure. Okay. That's probably the slides coming up, but I'm not positive. But that's, that's kind of where we'll start next week. But that, you'd bring up a good point because in our world, choices are made ba- based upon favor that we perceive. All right. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in a lot of sports, when teams were picked, I wasn't like, I want Cliff on my team. It's like I wasn't one of the top picks, I was, all right, who wants Cliff? Like, oh, well, you know, maybe I was better than a couple other, but it was all based upon perceived value. Uh, and, and if you did get picked early, you felt really good about yourself. Like, you know, like I was, let's say it was a particular, whatever it was, and I felt like I had some capability there, and so I was picked because I had certain capabilities. But in this case, it's not a choice based upon perceived worth in the individual. 
It's a choice based on simply the grace of God and the purpose of God. And if you say, why, why exactly Cliff and, and not whoever, or you and who, R.C. Sproul's got a great answer for that. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, if I can find it. Oh, R.C. Sproul says this. Where we struggle with predestination, he's a little bit further than we are, is at this point that God leaves some to themselves, but in other cases he intervenes. He gives a blessing to his elect that he does not give to other people. This means that God does not treat everybody alike. Indeed, Scripture from the beginning to end makes it abundantly clear that God doesn't treat everybody the same. Why doesn't God give his grace to everyone? It is certainly a legitimate question. We do not know the answer. It's a legitimate question. We don't know the answer. Hannah. I think maybe waiting for others more desperate. And, and one of the points made in that little booklet, The Glorious Mystery of Election or however, one of the points is, and you both got what you wanted. She, she is, if God doesn't prevent anybody from entering the kingdom of heaven. You both are getting exactly what you want, but we pray that God would overcome, we'll talk about that more next week, God will overcome her lack of wanting anything to do with the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Theron. We'll talk about that a little bit from Deuteronomy next week, especially. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I was going to say another remark that I think is, you know, a, a classic question would be, well, and how do you know that you're elect? And D.L. Moody, I like his quote, D.L. Moody was not known as a big sovereign grace kind of a guy. He was known as an evangelist, uh, founded Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Moody Memorial Church is named after him. D.L. Moody said, he said, the elect are the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. Everybody gets exactly what they want. What election says is that God overcomes our own lack of affection toward God of Scripture. It overcomes that to create new desires so that what we want more than anything else is a pearl of great price. And all the glory goes to God. Joash. Well, I'm going to say yes. We'll unpack that more next week for sure. I mean, the short answer is we are chosen to be holy and blameless before him. So the clear implication is I'm not holy and blameless left to myself because I'm being chosen to be something that I'm not. And and so how does God choose me to be holy when I'm clearly not holy? When I'm by nature a, a child of wrath, even as everyone else. How is it? God, Habakkuk said, God is so holy, he cannot even look on that which is evil. So if God can't even behold that which is evil, how can he choose the likes of me to be holy and blameless before him? He chose me in Christ. It's because of Christ. It's entirely who he is in his work. But we'll unpack. I wish we would have got further this week. Talk to me right afterward. Uh, if you get the little booklet on the back for your counter, that'll help 
some. If you need more than that, I can provide books. We'll work through a little bit further next week. Let's stand to be dismissed in prayer.